Many years ago, the famous English scientist Thomas Huxley was traveling to Dublin, Ireland, where he was to speak at a very prestigious meeting. But his travel was delayed, and he arrived at the city center, and he feared that he would be too late making it to the meeting hall. So at the Dublin station, he leapt into one of that city's famous horse-drawn taxis, and he said to the coachman, Drive fast! The driver set off at a very vigorous pace, and Huxley settled back in the cab. After a while, the Huxley realized the driver was headed the wrong way. So he demanded of the driver, do you know where you're going? No, your honor, said the driver. I don't know where I'm going, but I am driving very fast. That, sadly, is a good picture of much of the world today. There are lots of people in this world who have no idea where they're going, but they're going very fast. Someone has described our age as the age of confusion, saying we don't know what we want, but we want it mighty bad, and we want it mighty quick. So we're driving very fast. We have no idea where we're going. Would you please turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2? Daniel is found near the end of the Old Testament after the big books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, that's a little book, and Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see that there is a God in heaven who knows exactly where this world is going, and he has made it very clear for anyone who will listen. Daniel chapter 2, 600 years before Jesus was born, a teenage prophet revealed God's plan for all of human history, and most importantly, where the world's going and where it ends. Do you want to know where the world is going? Well, the story begins in verses 1 to 13 with a troubled king. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 3. Daniel chapter 2. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and the spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. According to verse 1, these, these dreams came in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Let's set the stage just a little bit. What does that mean? Where, where are we? Where is Daniel? How old is Daniel? Well, we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and Jerusalem in the year 605 BC, and he took Daniel and his friends as young teenage boys, perhaps 14, 15 years old, as captives from Jerusalem to Babylon, 605 B.C. But at that time, Nebuchadnezzar was not yet the king of Babylon. His father, Nabopolassar, died the following year, and Nebuchadnezzar became king in 604. Now, the Babylonians had an interesting way of numbering the years of their king's reign. The first year of the reign of the king was called his ascension year. And then the next year was called his first year. And the year after that, his second year, and so on. That's just the way they counted them in Babylon. So by the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Daniel has now been in Babylon a little over three years. He and his friends have completed the training program to be 
to be servants in the court of the Babylonian king three years long that is described in Daniel chapter 1. Shakespeare once wrote, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. And indeed, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the king is uneasy. He's having dreams at night that are troubling him. And you notice verse 1, it's plural. He had dreams. Verse 2, it's plural. He had dreams. Yet verse 3, he says to the wise men when they come in, I had a dream. Singular. What's going on there? Well, most likely it's a reoccurring nightmare. That's why he says dreams, dreams, but it is one dream. And he's anxious, he's troubled, he can't sleep. The Hebrew word for troubled at the end of verse 3 means a, a intense disturbance of the spirit. This is no little trouble. These dreams are really bothering him. So he calls for his royal think tank of magicians, conjurers, sorcerers. These are the priests and the wise men of the occultic religion of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar presents them with a really tough demand, beginning in verse 4. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen from me that the command is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered, the king and said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. See, they're saying, you're being unreasonable, O king. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. We know from archaeology and from ancient history that the Babylonian wise men had whole books about dream interpretation. They had classified certain symbols and codified what they meant. So if you told them a dream, they could tell you, according to their books, what it meant, and they could do it with some degree of consistency. You know, if you're falling in a dream, it means this. If you're flying in a dream, it means this. If you see flowers in a dream, it means that, and so on. 
But you can see that Nebuchadnezzar is very suspicious of their abilities. As he says to them in verse 9, You have agreed to speak together with lying and corrupt words. I want proof that you really have the ability to do something amazing and supernatural. So here's the deal. You tell me what I dreamed. And then you tell me what it meant. He says that to them no less than three times. Tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it meant. Anybody can make up an interpretation to a dream, given a little bit of imagination. But if they can tell him what he dreamed, and then tell him what it meant, they'll get great rewards and gifts and great honor. But if they fail, verse 5 and 6, they'll be hacked to pieces, their house turned into a rubbish heap. Nebuchadnezzar's playing for keeps here, and that was certainly his prerogative as king of Babylon. So by the end of verse 13, we have a very troubled king, and we also have some troubled wise men who have just been sentenced to death. Now, unfortunately, that also includes Daniel and his friends because they have recently been promoted to the ranks of the wise men of Babylon. You can read about that in chapter 1. But since the book of Daniel goes on for 12 full chapters and covers another 70 years of Daniel's life, you have a pretty good idea that he's not going to die just yet. Verses 14 to 30, we meet a confident young prophet, confident not in himself, Confident in his God. As we read Daniel's response here to the situation, I see four qualities which are good reminders for us. We can learn something from Daniel. Verses 14 to 30. Verse 14, notice Daniel's poise. When a crisis comes, we can respond with poise, not because we have any particular wisdom in ourselves, but because of who our God is. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied, and with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Apparently Daniel has been left out of the interaction up to this point. And I love those opening words of verse 14. He replied with discretion and discernment. The executioner is pounding on the door to come in and kill them, and he replies with discretion and discernment. You know, I pray that you and I could learn in a crisis to respond like Daniel responds, with discretion and discernment. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. May we learn to respond, even, even when somebody is ready to kill us, with a gentle answer, discretion, discernment. And that leads, next practical lesson, to Daniel's prayer, verses 17 and 18. When, when a crisis comes, we need that poise that comes from confidence in God, and we need that commitment to pray to the God of heaven who's in control of all things. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Those are later given Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He informed his friends about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Where do you go in a crisis? Daniel called a prayer meeting. Daniel got together with other believers for even more effective prayer. That's why we come together as a church body on Sunday night. We need to pray. We need to gather together with one another for more effective prayer. Pastor Joseph Parker commented on this passage. He wrote this, To God, that is your marching order. When you are troubled, frightened, overwhelmed, imperiled, to God. Do not consult equals or superior, but flee. Haste thee. Beat urgently upon heaven's door. Knock, and it shall be opened unto thee. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. To God. That's our marching order. Well, God honored these prayers. As verse 19 begins, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. I suspect that they were praying well into the night. And Daniel has a vision, not a dream now, but a vision in which he sees what Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed and he's also given understanding as to what this dream meant. So now Daniel leaps up on his camel and with the William Tell Overture spurring him on in the background, he rides into the castle to proclaim his triumph that he knows what the dream is, right? No, that's the way Hollywood would tell the story. Look next at Daniel's praise of God, verses 19 to 23. We see Daniel's poise coming from a confidence in God. Daniel gives prayer to God. And when the answer comes, Daniel, the very first thing he does is give praise to God. Verse 19 continues. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now... Thou hast made known to me what, requ- what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. That little section of scripture is sometimes called the Psalm of Daniel. Because like a psalm, it is just filled with praise to God for the attributes of God. It's absolutely packed with biblical truth. And interestingly enough, Daniel is loosely quoting here from the Psalms and from the other books that would have been part of the Bible of his day. Verse 20, he says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. That comes from Psalm 103 and Psalm 145. He praises God because wisdom and power belong to him. That's from the great prayer of David, 1 Chronicles 29.11. Verse 21, he praises the sovereignty of God over time. He changes the times and the epochs. Psalm 31.15 says, the times are in thy hand. 
He praises the sovereignty of God over kings. He removes kings and establishes kings. That comes from Psalm 75, verse 7. And by the way, that's a hint as to what this dream is all about. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He reveals the profound and hidden things. That's the truth from Psalm 25, 14. He knows what is in the darkness. That comes from Psalm 139, verse 12. You see... Daniel is praying the Scriptures. He has so filled his mind with the character of God from the Word of God that when he prays, that's what comes out. How often do you think about God? When you think about God, what do you think about God? Are you filling your mind with the character of God from the Word of God that builds the confidence in God so that when a crisis comes, you have that poise to to respond in discretion and discernment because you know who God is and who's in control. And you bring the situation to prayer in God. And when God answers, you respond with just an explosion of praise to God from all that is in your mind about God. And then fourth, fourth practical lesson here from Daniel, he proclaims his God to anyone who will hear. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. You know, Daniel even had compassion on those pagan wise men. He saved their lives right there. Don't destroy them. Take me to the king. Verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who could make the interpretation known to the king. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Very first question from the king's lips. Can you tell me what I dreamed? Saying, Daniel, the rules haven't changed. They're the same for you as they are for all my other wise men. First you tell me what I dreamed, and then you tell me what it means. Verse 27. It's another example of that great discretion and discernment from Daniel. Daniel answered before the king and he said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar of the failure of the false religious system of the sorcerers, the astrologers, the the Chaldeans, the wise men of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew that. Why does Daniel rub salt in the wound, as it were? Because, I believe, he wants to separate himself from their system and their pagan religion. He's not learned the dream by their methods, by their techniques, by their black magic, by their sorcery, but by the one true God. His abilities don't come from their methods and their training, even though he had three years of that in chapter 1. He separates himself from pagan idolatry. You know what? As Christians, we should never dabble in horoscopes, astrology, seances, tarot cards, divination. 
Because those things are false pagan religion and they are dangerous. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 13, tells us exactly that. So Daniel separates himself from the pagan religion, and then, on the other hand, he makes it very clear where his answer does come from. Look at verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while in your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That is a powerful and essential message to the world today. There is a God in heaven who will answer our prayers. There is a God in heaven who will guide us in our decisions. There is a God in heaven who will provide for our needs. There is a God in heaven to whom we can bring our wayward children. There is a God in heaven who will save us and deliver us from all sin. There is a God in heaven. You fill in the blank. Whatever you need, whatever concerns you, whatever is hurting you today, there is a God in heaven. Notice how Daniel also takes no credit for himself. Verse 30. This mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom in me. When I was in seminary, I had the privilege of hearing a great man of God of that time proclaim a chapel message. His name was J. Oswald Sanders. He was 90 years old at the time he preached this chapel message, and he had been walking with Christ as a Christian for the last 80 years of his life. And he spoke to us, young men, going into the ministry about how to protect our ministry from ruin. And with his quaint Australian accent, I vividly remember his three points because they were so clear and so simple. Number one, he said, touch not the girl. Many people had and are still failing in ministry because of immorality. Touch not the girl. Number two, he said, touch not the gold. People fail in ministry because of financial impropriety, mishandling the money. Don't touch the gold. Number three, and probably most importantly, he said to us, touch not the glory. Isaiah 42.8. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give the glory to another. When God does a mighty thing, don't touch the glory. Don't take any credit for yourself. Give the credit to whom it belongs, and that is God in heaven. Touch not the glory.
Daniel has such a knowledge of God, such a relationship with God, that when a crisis comes and when they're beating on the door to kill him, he responds with poise because of his confidence in God. He responds with prayer to the God of heaven because of his confidence in God. He explodes with praise to God because he knows who God is. And he proclaims the God of heaven and he doesn't touch the glory. That's the confident young prophet. And that brings us to the third scene in this chapter, the amazing interpretation. He had demanded, Nebuchadnezzar had demanded two things from Daniel. Tell me what I dreamed and tell me the interpretation. And that's exactly what happens. Verses 31 to 35, Daniel describes the image. Daniel 31 verses 36 through 45, Daniel declares the interpretation. Now, As you look at verse 31 and what follows, imagine the look on Nebuchadnezzar's face as this teenage boy begins to tell him exactly what he had been dreaming. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 31, Daniel tells him, first of all, three attributes of this statue that he saw. First of all, there is a progressive deterioration as we go from top to bottom. Gold, is more valuable than silver. Silver is more valuable than bronze. Bronze is more valuable than iron. And iron is certainly more valuable than a mixture of iron and clay. The word for clay there means baked clay or pottery. Progressive deterioration. It also becomes more brittle as it descends. You know, think about it. Gold is one of the softer metals and it is almost impossible to, to smash or break gold. It's, it just bends. becomes more brittle as it goes down through time. It's also top-heavy. You know, every substance has what, what scientists call a specific gravity. That's the ratio of its weight to its volume. And by specific gravity, gold is heavier than silver. Silver is heavier than bronze. Bronze is heavier than iron. Iron is heavier than Iron mixed with clay. Deterioration, brittleness, and top-heavy as we go through time. And as Nebuchadnezzar watches this terrifying statue in the dream, suddenly a stone appears. A stone that was cut out without hands. A stone not of human origin. And as we go to the interpretation of this dream, we will find out that this stone is the only thing in the dream that doesn't have a human origin. The stone, like a guided missile, 
strikes the statue in its feet, and the whole statue just explodes into nothing but chaff. Chaff is the the leftover husks and straw after threshing grain. The whole thing is just blown away by the wind like chaff. That's the image described. It's a testimony to the awesome knowledge of God. How could Daniel possibly know that? He knew it because God showed him. Psalm 94 verse 11 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man. God knows exactly what are in my thoughts today. God knows exactly what are in your thoughts today. So Daniel describes the image, and then Daniel declares the interpretation. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Now, as we move into this interpretation, the key word repeated nine times in the next few verses is the word kingdoms. Governments. Nations. This image represents four successive kingdoms or governments or world empires, and then it shows the end of all human government. This dream tells us where the world is going and where it ends. It's a timeline. It's a sequence of history. We're reminded here that every human government will eventually fail. They all come to an end. The British historian Alexander Tyler described the typical pattern of nations when he wrote this. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency back to bondage. When Tyler wrote that, he was not talking about modern nations, although it's still true today. He was describing the fall of ancient Athens. But what he says is true of Babylon Persia, Greece, and Rome, every human government will eventually fail. So now, the details of the dream. The first world empire, the first government of that time, is Babylon, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. That's very clear. You are the head of gold. When the ancient Greek historian Herodotus visited Babylon about 90 years after Nebuchadnezzar's time, he wrote that he had never seen so much gold in all his life. The temples were gold, the chapels were gold, even the utensils were gold. Isaiah 14.4 calls Babylon the golden city. Gold was an ideal symbol for Babylon. The head of gold also represents Nebuchadnezzar's supreme power and authority, which nothing could challenge in his time. He was the supreme monarch over all the known world. And by the way, those verses also remind us that for every king, every president, every ruler, every governor, every legislature, 
Where does it come from? To whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. For every government, for every ruler, it comes from one place and one place only, the God of heaven. So Babylon was the first world empire of Daniel's time, the head of gold, but Babylon fell into complacency, apathy, dependency, and bondage. The golden kingdom of Babylon ended in a drunken stupor in a wild party in one night. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. So verse 39 continues, and after you, stop right there. Think about those two little words. After you. There is always someone coming after you. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter how much power you've got. It doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter anything about you. You will pass away. And someone else is coming after you. After you, he says, is coming the kingdom of silver. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. That's all he has to say about the kingdom of silver. Why so little? I suspect, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, so little about the kingdom that is coming after him because Nebuchadnezzar would become obsessed with whatever's coming after him and would miss the real message of the dream. So that's all he gets to know. But Daniel 8.20 tells us that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians is the one that is coming next, the kingdom of silver. Verse 39 continues. Then another, a third kingdom, a kingdom of bronze, will rule over all the earth. Well, just as silver was an ideal uh, way of describing the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, just as Babylon was rich in gold, Medo-Persia was rich in silver. They collected all their taxes in silver. They had vast wealth in silver. They valued silver. And then the kingdom of bronze is coming. Daniel 8.21 tells us that Greece is the next kingdom after the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And just as gold is an ideal symbol for Babylon, silver is an ideal symbol for Medo-Persia, bronze was an ideal symbol for for Greece. Eight, uh, 320 years before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered all the known world of his time from Europe to Egypt and all the way from India. It's reported that Alexander the Great wept when he realized there were no more kingdoms for him to conquer. But Alexander used bronze extensively in his army. They had bronze helmets. Bronze swords, bronze shields, bronze breastplates, and bronze swords. Greece was the kingdom of bronze. But after you, there's always somebody coming after you. Verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that is the kingdom of of Rome. Again, iron is the ideal symbol for Rome. The Roman legions were called the Iron Legions of Rome. Rome ruled the world of its time with the strength of iron. Now remember, Daniel is declaring all of these things 600 years before Christ. At this time, the, the cities of Greece were nothing more than warring tribes. 
Rome was a little village on the Tiber River. This was an amazing, detailed, specific revelation of the kingdoms to come. This is not like predicting that Kentucky will win the NCAA tournament this year. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But, you know, you have a pretty good chance of being right. This is like saying that South Carolina State will win it 20 years from today. Whoever heard of South Carolina State, right? Oh, South Dakota State then. <laughs> okay. You see, he is, he is telling because God has revealed it exactly what will happen in the future. But very quickly, this prophecy begins to focus on the feet and the toes of the Roman Empire. Notice how much attention Daniel gives to the toes, beginning in verse 41. As you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. It will have the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. The feet and the toes are partly strong, iron, and partly weak, pottery. More about that in a minute. But remember, this is a timeline. This is showing us the, the progressive kingdoms of world history. And in the toes, the very end of the timeline, we reach the climax. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, plural, governments, kings, all at the same time, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. There's nothing coming after that one. That kingdom will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the irons, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. A stone cut out without hands will crush and shatter and destroy all the kingdoms and all the governments of the world. Now that is very clear and specific, and that is Jesus. Psalm 118 verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Acts 4.11, Ephesians 2.20 tell us that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And Jesus said about himself in Luke chapter 20, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. Jesus someday will scatter all the kingdoms of this world to be nothing more than dust and chaff. This is not Jesus coming into Jerusalem humble and gentle, riding on a donkey, as Andy read about last week. This is Jesus coming into the world riding on a horse, a white horse, as Andy also read about last week from Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. 
and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. When the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming. When he comes, he will crush all the nations of this world, this world completely and suddenly so that they are nothing more than dust and chaff. In that day, the scripture says, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is catastrophic, not gentle. It is complete and not partial. So what about the historical sequence? What about Rome? Understand that many biblical prophecies have in them a gap in time. We could study, for example, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where we see the first coming of Christ set right next to the second coming of Christ, but there's a gap, a mystery, called the church in the middle. We could study Micah 5, verses 2 to 4, where Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Verse 2, Jesus reigns in majesty. Verse 4, but there's a gap, a mystery, the church right in between. In the same way, between verses 40 and 41, there's a gap, there's a mystery. There's the church age, which was not revealed in the Old Testament time. But, think about it. The old Roman Empire, two parts, east and west, strength of iron, never really ended It just sort of faded. Our form of government today in America and Europe is essentially Roman. You know, we have a legislature. We have a senate. We are a republic. All of those are Roman words and Roman concepts. So, in this great image, we see Jesus Christ coming to smash all the kingdoms of this world and the first Four kingdoms have happened precisely as the prophecy is described as a down payment and a guarantee that he will come precisely as the prophecy described someday in the future, I don't know when, and nobody does, to smash all the kingdoms of this world. He is the cornerstone. He is the rock of ages. He is the only solid rock on which you can build your life. When Jesus comes... Will he be your solid rock? Or will he be the rock that crushes you and destroys you? Well, that's the interpretation declared. One last little thing. The impact demonstrated. Verses 46 to 49. First of all, the word of God describes the impact of all of this upon Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 46. And this is pretty amazing. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him with an offering and fragrant incense. Now think about that. This man is the undisputed king of the whole world. He is not in the habit of falling down before people. People fall down before him. And yet now he falls down on his face before Daniel and does homage to him. And he confesses the God of Israel, verse 47. 
The king answered Daniel and said, Surely, your God. Remember how Daniel separated himself from the pagan gods? Surely, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's the impact on Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the impact on Daniel. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was divided into, I believe, 127 provinces. The capital province, of course, was Babylon. He makes him governor of the capital and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 17. Maybe 18 years old, he is now governor of Babylon and the head wise men of all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember the three friends from the prayer meeting, over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was in the king's court. See the impact on Nebuchadnezzar? We see the impact upon Daniel and his friends. Let me tell you the impact on my own life. A little over 40 years ago, I was a junior high school student, and a friend of mine named Craig invited me to his church youth group. It just so happened that that night, the church youth group was going to hear an evangelist speak. And guess what passage the evangelist was speaking from? Daniel chapter 2. And that night, even though I had been going to church all my life, I heard for the first time in my life that Jesus Christ was coming back again and that he would rule this world. I heard for the first time in my life that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that when I died or that when Jesus came back, I could live forever with him. And most importantly, for the first time in my life, I heard the gospel that Christ died on the cross for my sins, that he took all my sins upon himself and he Give me his righteousness. And all that he calls upon me to do is believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That night, later that night, alone in my bedroom, I prayed and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me for all eternity. And he did. And my life has never been the same since that night when I heard Daniel chapter 2. The scripture has had a powerful impact on Nebuchadnezzar, on Daniel, on me. Why? Several lessons from this dream, and I close with this. We see the failure of every human empire. Every human empire, government, business, IBM, Microsoft, Apple, General Motors, they will all fail. They will all be turned to dust and chaff. The only things that are eternal are God, God's word, God's kingdom, and God's people. Everything else will fail. We see the certainty of God's plan. God knows exactly where this world is going. And he invites us to be part of it. We see the sovereignty of God. For specific, detailed prophecy to be possible, God has to be in control. God did not just wind this world up like an alarm clock and then leave it alone. No, God knows exactly where this world is going and God's in control. We see that life has purpose and meaning because this world is going somewhere and God invites you and me to be a part of it. 
We see the ultimate value of gold and silver. What is all the gold and silver going to be worth on the day that Jesus returns? Chaff. Dust. We see the return of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that day when the rock of ages will strike all the kingdoms of mankind? He will either be your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. You have no other choice. If you have lived for wealth, for fame, for power, for pleasure, for your own glory, it will all be gone. It will all be over. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.